Hey Grace, I invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is where we will be at today. We're in a series on the church. First week, Dan walked us through the essence of the church, and that is that we are united with Christ. Last week, Dan and Greg talked about the diversity of the church. That is that even though we are multi-ethnic and multi-generational and multi-gifted, we are united together. So if you can't guess through the theme here, Today we're talking about unity, the unity of the church. Now, you don't really need to go far looking for division. You can find that pretty much anywhere and everywhere in our world today. We're divided across all sorts of lines, politically, Democrat, Republican, sports, Ohio State, Michigan. We're divided on pretty much everything, including whether we're even all that divided. What's rare is unity. And that's what Jesus prays for his church that we may be one. It's remarkable, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. I think it might be the most incredible prayer in all of Scripture, but I want to give you just the background of where we're at. Because this is the night Jesus is going to be betrayed and arrested. He's been spending time with his disciples in the upper room, and John devotes a significant amount of time in his Gospel to this one night. John 13 through 16, it's Jesus sharing the last meal with his disciples and teaching and instructing them. John 17, it's the son praying to his father. John 18, Jesus is betrayed and arrested. If we just take those six chapters, well, we've already got well over a fourth of John's entire gospel on one night of Jesus' ministry. So this is a big deal. So we turn to John chapter 17, and we see Jesus praying to his father. And we're going to look specifically at verses 20 through 26. But I want to just let you know that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for essentially for himself, that, that, that he may glorify his Father and may be giving glory himself. That, that in John um, 17, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his 11 disciples. And then he turns his attention, look in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, so not just for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for his followers, for his church, for you and for me. If we believe in Jesus, he's praying for us. It's remarkable. And what is on his mind right here? What's on his heart as he begins to, to think about what's coming next? His, his betrayal and arrest and the next day, his crucifixion. What's on his heart is the unity of the church. Now, for me, if I knew that tonight I was going to be betrayed and arrested and tomorrow crucified, my prayers would probably look remarkably self-centered. Yeah, they would be for my family, but there would be a lot for comfort and strength and a way out. And, and Jesus does pray that um, elsewhere. We see that Jesus is praying for, for strength in the Garden of Gethsemane. But here, look, Jesus' prayer is for his church, that they may be one. This is very near and dear to the heart of Christ. Let's not delay any further. Let's turn to Scripture and see John chapter 20, or John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. We read this. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, 
may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. This is the word of God. So we see that Jesus prays for unity. I want to unpack a little bit what, what this looks like. First, this is a Trinitarian unity. It is a Trinitarian unity. This is the kind of unity Jesus prays for. It is founded in the Trinity. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The foundation for our unity is the triune God. So we're going to do a little bit of Trinitarian theology here, but don't let that scare you because this is what we do every Sunday, every time we preach the word, because all Christian theology is Trinitarian theology. Christians worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're each fully God. So the, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. They are not three parts that make up the whole, nor are they one God who just kind of manifests the different persons at different times. They are each truly and fully God. And, and they are not interchangeable. The Father, he's not the Son, nor is he the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor is he the Spirit. And the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. They are three distinct persons, and yet they are so perfectly and fully one that we can read this. And every Jewish boy and girl would learn the Shema from an early age. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God, three persons. All right, so we track it so far. This is, this is the Trinity. And so um, secondly, this God has always been and will always be God. So, for example, the Son is not created. He is not just the greatest or the, the first or the precursor to all God's creations. No, he is, in fact, the uncreated creator of all things. He has no beginning and he will have no end. The Son is eternal just as the Father and the Spirit are eternal. And that means that for all time, God has been perfectly loving within himself, the triune Godhead. If I were to ask you, what's the favorite Bible verse among Americans? Well, it might be Judge Not. That's a pretty popular one. Another one, God is love. We love this, and rightly so, because it's very true. This is who God is. It's not just a part of who he is. It's not just kind of one of the characteristics. Of the God is love. But if we don't have a robust Trinitarian theology as we think about God is love, we can get into some pretty messed up areas. Because see, if we think that God began loving when he created us, then what we're saying is actually that the self-sufficient God needed us in order to be who he is. God did not begin to love when he created us. No, God has always been loving. The Father has always been loving the Son, and the Son has always been loving the Father in the bond of the Holy Spirit for all time. Creation was not out of a lack in God, but out of an abundance. 
He was overflowing with the love he's always had for the Father, the Son, and the bond of the Spirit overflows into creating a world and, and you and I to share in that. And so God invites us into the very love that he has always shared within himself. And so that's why Jesus could pray that, the, that God loved him, the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. But then he also says, back up one verse in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. breathtaking. Our hearts struggle to even grasp and comprehend this. But it's true. If you are in Christ, the Father loves you just as he loves his Son. That he has been loving his Son before the foundation of the world. There's been no beginning to that. God is love and has always been love. And he invites you into this glorious Trinitarian love. One, one author said that it's like there are rivers of love flowing between the three members of the Trinity and that we find our unity by being plunged and you know, we're grace brethren, so fully immersed into this river of love. It's remarkable that we are united with God. This is the unity we're talking about. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. We are united first and foremost to the triune God. And what does this look like? Well, earlier in, the, in this very prayer, back up to verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's knowing God. And when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's, a, it's an effectual love from the heart that transforms our desires, that Jesus, that, that the triune God becomes our deepest treasure. Don Carson has said that eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Now, certainly eternal life is forever, but the glory, the, the true wonder of this eternal life is not so much in its duration but in his quality, that we know God and enjoy him forever. And we are called into this relationship. The, the Father has chosen and given his people to the Son, who in the fullness of time took on flesh, lived among us, and died for us. So that now the Spirit applies this to our hearts, and we are drawn into the Trinitarian love that has always been and will always be. Our salvation, just like creation, is a work of the Trinity. And so... I start here because, yes, that's where our passage goes, but also because I want you to be clear. The, the unity we are talking about here today will not make sense if you are not first united with the triune God. This is the foundation. It's the model for the unity that we share with one another. And so it, Jesus prays, even earlier, he says that I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. This is not a prayer for those people who find Jesus maybe interesting, but don't submit to him as Lord. It's not a prayer for those who come to church and, and sit in the pews, but they don't treasure Christ in their hearts. This is not a prayer for those who are counting on their own righteousness to save them instead of the righteousness of Christ. No, this is a prayer for those who have been given to the Son by the Father, those for whom the Son died. This is a prayer for believers. So if you don't know God, I invite you this morning or whenever you're listening to Put your faith, put your trust in him and be drawn into the love that the Trinity has that the Father will love you as he has always loved the Son. And you will know God. For those of us who do know God, well, 
we are united with one another. Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are one for his disciples. And then later on he says um, that they may be one even as we are one, that they may become perfectly one. A.W. Tozer uses this wonderful illustration of a piano. He says this, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, that they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, we don't find our unity by looking around and trying to match each other. We find our unity by looking to the triune God and being united with Him. And then all of us who are united with Him are united together. The Bible can talk about us being one because we, in a very real spiritual sense, are already one. And now we've got to figure out how does that play out? What does that look like in our lives today? But, you know, it's not lost on me either that many times when people talk about unity or even use this passage to do so in a very ecumenical mindset, saying let's do away with all denominational and doctrinal divides because those work against what Jesus prays for. Now, certainly, we do want to do away with any sort of needless or unnecessary division. And, though I don't have anything particular in mind here, I, I don't presume that with how many different denominational divides and church splits over the last couple hundred years, that all of them have been warranted and justified. I don't presume that. But, but I don't think this is a unity that is apart from truth, but instead a unity that is around truth. So this is a scriptural unity. It is a scriptural unity. But while I think that is a very true and clear concept from scripture, if I can't really argue from this passage, then I'd probably misapply what Jesus is saying, right? Well, back up a few verses here. Back up to verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then he launches into the passage we just read. So in other words, from the context here, I don't think that we could argue that Jesus is saying, do away with truth. Three quick notes. One, he says, I've given them your word. What's he given them? Well, his teaching. He's given his disciples his teaching. His word. But for us... We've also been given the Word of God. It might look slightly different, but we have the Word of God right here, the Bible. So he has given us his Word. Second, um, he says that uh, sanctify them in the truth. And we know because he says your Word is truth. He's talking about sanctify them in the Word. Now, when we hear the word sanctification or sanctify, our minds go sanctification from sin. And that's a very right and fair use of the word because the New Testament does use it that way and um, that's often the way we use it. However, I want to argue that that's not the way it's used here. Because sanctify can also mean to be set apart. And the reason I argue that's the way it's used here is look at verse 19. That's what clues me in. It says, For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's the same root word there for consecrate and sanctify. 
map the ESV correctly, I think for, for good motivation, says, uh, for I consecrate myself. Because all, if we have Jesus saying, I sanctify myself, all of a sudden we could be running into some pretty messed up areas of theology. Because Jesus does not need to be sanctified from sin, for he has no sin. He's the perfectly pure and holy one, spotless, without any blemish, without any sin in him. So when Jesus is saying this here, he can't mean from sin. So the consecrate idea brings it out. So Jesus essentially is saying, for their sake, for the sake of his people, I consecrate, I set myself apart. But I think, to be fair, if it's the same sentence by the same speaker, we've got to probably use it the same way. So he says, that they also may be set apart in truth. And this fits with the context of what he's saying, because he's praying that they would not be taken out of the world, but that they would not be of the world. We often say, in but not of. How are we set apart from the world? We're set apart from the world in the truth. You can either be a person of the world or a person of the word. Those are your two options. The way that we are set apart from the world is in the word of God. Jen Wilkins says, the heart cannot, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. I think she's absolutely right. If you don't know God, how can you love God? If you say you love God and don't care whatsoever about knowing Him from His Word, maybe you got to reconsider how much you actually do love Him. We are set apart from the world in the Word. And number three says, "Your Word is truth." Now we would expect this, you know, we expect adjective or whatever, and, and it uses a noun. And so, as many commentators have pointed out, basically what he's saying here is this. The word of God is not, some, is not conformed to some external standard of truth. The word of God is itself the standard of truth to which all else must conform. Are you conforming your life to the word of God? The unity we are talking about here is not a unity apart from truth. It is a unity around truth. Truth is, in fact, the basis for our unity. I think this is, a, this is keeping within context what Jesus means here as well. So listen, church, as we fight for truth, we must not forsake unity because the kind of unity we're talking about is not in spite of the truth, but in and around the truth. And so you say, well, what does this look like? How does this happen? Well, let me give you one practical way that I think through these things. Albert Muller has a concept he calls theological triage. If you've not heard of it, I invite you, you can Google it and find out. But also, Taylor, Hannah, and myself have done a podcast episode on this very topic, on theological triage that I commend to you. Basically, the concept is this. You've got to know which doctrines are most worth fighting for. All of them come from Scripture, and so we've got, we got to take them seriously. But they're going to have different levels of division that they warrant. For example, you might say, okay, a tier one issue is those things that, well... If you don't believe this, you're probably not a Christian. These are, these are essential matters of the faith. So the Trinity, the deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, the authority of Scripture, some of these things you might put in tier one. Tier two, there would be issues, well, if you don't believe this, you're probably not going to be part of the same church as me, but still, uh, still love Jesus. For example, I might put in here uh, mode of baptism. Right? I, I believe in believer's baptism or complementarianism. These are things I probably would differ on churches from, but not from the unity of the Spirit among believers. Then tier three would be issues where, well, we disagree and take things seriously, but these aren't worth dividing over. I would put many matters of eschatology in here. 
Now, the fact that Jesus is returning and that Jesus is going to judge, those are doing tier one. But when the rapture is going to happen and, and when he's going to return, those things would put tier three. We might have disagreements, but I'm not going to divide a church over those. Now, I'm not so concerned that you necessarily divide everything the way I do, but that we've got to think through these things. Because if not, we can wind up fighting for the doctrine of the Trinity with the same amount of vigor and energy that we fight for the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. Listen, friends, I'm convinced of both from Scripture, but that doesn't mean we fight with the same amount of, of, of vigor. I'm going to respond much differently if someone attacks the doctrine of the Trinity versus if they attack the rapture and when that happens. The error of liberalism has been tearing tier one issues and bringing them down to tier three. And the error of fundamentalism is taking tier three issues and bringing them up to tier one. Friends, we've got to think through what are the essentials that are worth dividing over and what are not. And so yes, we do draw lines in the sand. We must. We must stand for, for truth. But church, one of the lines we must draw is for the unity of the church. If we are to be people of the book and take seriously what the Bible says, we must also take seriously what it says about being united with one another. And so yes, by all means, draw lines in the sand on truth, but draw one, in the line, one line in the sand for the unity of the church as well. It is a scriptural unity. And third, it is a missional unity. It is a missional unity. Part of the reason why our unity matters because it's a witness to the world. Jesus gives his church a mission. The Great Commission, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. By the way, you got Trinity there, Father, Son, Spirit, three distinct persons, and yet one name, singular. So, one God, three persons. You've also got the truth. He says, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So, you've got both of those aspects going on here. That's just a side note. What does Jesus say here? He prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on and says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Twice in there, Jesus prays for our unity so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son and that the Father loves the Son, or loves you as he loves the Son. This is a missional unity. Part of the way that we witness to the world is by the unity of the church. And I don't think we take this seriously enough. We spend all of our time strategizing and coming up with new techniques and concepts and all that. And that's good and right to, to figure out how do we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I think maybe we've missed one of the primary tools Jesus has given us, and it is our unity. The first week, Dan used the illustration of a hidden treasure, talking about the church. I, th I thought that was a brilliant illustration, and I'm, I'm going to steal it now and, and apply it here. I think there's a hidden treasure in the evangelism and mission of the church that we've been sitting on for far too long and not really considered the value and importance of it. And it's our unity. You say, well, how does this work? Well, first of all, I, Jesus said it does, and so I trust him. I'm not after pragmatism. I, I trust the means that Jesus has given his church are sufficient to accomplish his mission. 
But I've also heard, even this week, as I prepared for this message, stories from people who attest that this is true, who were drawn to Christ through his church, seeing the unity and the love they had for one another. Think about it. The world doesn't need to go looking for division, and so it's not going to be impressed by more division. The world is not going to be impressed by a church that looks just like itself. Jesus prays that we would be set apart from the world and the truth, but not that we would be removed from the world altogether. Amidst the divisions and the dissensions of a broken world, the church is like a light shining into the dark, the stormy night, proclaiming hope to a world that desperately needs it. And by this, we represent Christ to the world. You catch that? We represent Christ to the world. When Paul hears of the divisions in the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, do you know what his response is? He says, is Christ divided? In other words, Paul is saying that by our divisions, we are misrepresenting Christ to the world. We are, we are representing a Christ who is divided, and that must not be. When, when Peter is falsely dividing in Galatians 2, Paul responds that it's a gospel issue. One commentator wrote that there is a picture frame around every church proclaiming to the world and our community, this is what God is like. So let me ask you, church, when our community looks at us, looks at us as a church, what do they think God is like? What picture of Christ are they getting from our unity and our love for one another? Thomas Manton has been quoted as saying that divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. A divided church communicates a divided Christ to a divided world. And so what would be too appealing about that? If, you know, the, the, why would the world consider a message that we bear if we bear all the marks of the world? See, they're going to see a church that looks divided. If they see a church that is quibbling and quarreling over the same things they are, for, over masks, for goodness sakes, why are they going to be too impressed? Why are they going to think they need Jesus after all? If they see our divisions, they might think, well, Christ is divided. We are misrepresenting Christ by our divisions with one another, and so we must take this seriously. Mark Dever is a pastor in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. We talk about political division. There you go. He recently gave an address to his church on the unity of the church, and he, he, he said this to them. He said, I promise you, the, unity, the purpose of our unity is more important than any political opinion you hold. Because the purpose of our unity, friends, is to represent Christ to a divided and a broken world. We must not take this lightly, and we must take it seriously. I love the way that one commentator put it, and I think this captures it well. They said this, the church can be a taste of heaven. When people with different preferences, hobbies, jobs, genders, backgrounds, skin colors, accents, and tastes love one another, with a love surpassing all human love, they open a window to heaven, and people begin to feel a breeze from a far-off country, and in their souls awaken a long-dormant hope. They want to go to that place and to be with those people who know see and feel something different, something beyond, something more. The love of God assures us that we have a home and a country on the other side of the sea. This knowledge binds us together and spills out in a love that feels strangely foreign but still familiar. When people see this love displayed in a million little ways, they will hope it's real. 
And when the hope is confirmed, they will understand that the story is true. They will know Jesus lives and Jesus loves. So church, may this be true of us. So now to borrow from Dan Allen once again, as we round third and head for home, I want to apply this to our lives today. You might, I hope that you've been sufficiently persuaded from the words of Scripture that the unity of the church is important and probably more important than any of us, myself included, really think. But what does that look like today? How has that played out in our lives? I want to offer four brief insights from Scripture that I think are pertinent for us today. First, heed the warnings about divisiveness. Heed the warnings about divisiveness. Romans 16, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ for their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jude 19 through 21 talks about those who cause divisions, worldly people who are devoid of the Spirit. Galatians 5, right before he goes to the fruit of the Spirit, Paul talks about the fruit of the flesh, and he says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I humbly submit to you, my dear brothers and sisters, that we do not take seriously enough the warnings against divisiveness that are all throughout Scripture. Second, we are one body with many parts, but all in love. We are one body with many parts, but all in love. Last week, we heard from Dan and Greg about the diversity of the church. And you might be wondering, how does diversity and unity mix? Well, it does. And the Bible uses the illustration of a body. It says there's many different members and parts, but one body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses that very illustration. And then he says in verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice Together, So the body is made up of different parts and, and different members and different gifts and all of that, but one body. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, he goes on and says, you know, love is not a spiritual gift. All of the spiritual gifts are to be used in love. We are one body with many parts and all in love. You know, the kind of unity we're talking about does not remove any distinctiveness or diversity. It is not helpful to say, well, I don't see color in an effort to be united. Again, the world's not going to be impressed by if we love people who are just like us. The world does that. What is otherworldly is to love those who are not like you. The church brings together people from all sorts of different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and, and stories that would not otherwise be brought together if not for Jesus Christ. We all want unity. We just think we're the standard to which everyone else should conform. But what the Bible says is that the triune God is the standard to which all of us must conform. And that when we are doing that, we are united together. One body with many parts, but all in love. So speaking of love, continuing on with that theme, number three, submit to one another in love. Submit to one another in love. The single biggest obstacle to unity may just be pride. 
In my pride, I think everyone should agree with me. Everyone should submit to me. Because I foolishly think that I know best on every subject. So when that doesn't happen, when there's disagreement, when there's pushback, when people don't agree or follow me, well, I get angry. Because I just can't fathom why people wouldn't see things the same way I do. Because, of course, Star Wars is the greatest film franchise in history. I don't know why people don't see it the same way. Okay, I kid a little bit, although I'm serious about that. But I'm also serious that pride is an obstacle to unity, and so perhaps a remedy is submitting to one another. Ephesians 4 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Is that true of you? Are you eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit? Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is something that all of us fall short of on a daily basis. But again, here our example, our model is Christ, who in humility took on flesh and went to the cross for us. So friends, if he's done that for us, how can we not then love and submit to one another? How can we not then lay aside my preferences and my opinions about politics or masks or whatever that might be and submit to one another in love to say, I love you, even when we don't see eye to eye? That is remarkable. That is not what you will find in the world. And listen, church, one symptom of this, I think, is when we refuse to listen charitably to one another. And what I mean by this is when you hear someone speak, are you assuming the worst or assuming the best? When you hear someone say something that you're not sure you agree with, what's your response that rises up in your gut? Is it, aha, gotcha? Or is it, I wonder if they really meant that. I want to have a conversation with them. I'm not asking you to pretend away the obvious. People do reveal their heart and their loves through what they say and do. But I love what Gavin Ortland says. He says, we must distinguish between confused sheep and active wolves. What's your motivation when you listen to people? Are you charitable with your listening? Assuming and hoping the best about people? Or are you always assuming the worst? Assuming the worst motives, ready to catch people in the act? If you are a very critical and cynical person, you will always find evidence to convict. Because we are all sinners, especially myself. You will always find evidence to convict if you're always looking critically, but if you are looking charitably, if you are approaching people with love, it will lead to many, many fruitful conversations with grace mixed with truth and opportunities to learn and to love. And fourth, consider your words wisely. Consider your words wisely. This is an extension of what I've just been saying, but Jesus says in Matthew 12 that I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do your words bear truth mixed with grace? Do they build up the body of Christ rather than tear down? Do they promote unity rather than division? This applies not just face-to-face, -face, but also, maybe especially, online. I say especially because many of us, myself included, are going to be more bold to say something online than we are face-to-face. -face. And so we think that, well, 
because people choose to follow me on social media and because we have been given legal freedom to say what we want, we can say whatever we want. And if someone else doesn't like that, well, then they can unfollow me. My friends, I submit to you that's not a Christian response. A Christian response is, maybe I should then reconsider posting that. Because the Christian is called to a higher standard, not just to what is legally free or even morally free, but to what is loving, but to what is going to build up the body of Christ, not tear them down. So consider your speech and your words and use them wisely, not to create division, but to promote unity, not to tear down, but to build up, not to discourage, but to encourage, not to hate, but to love. Use your words wisely. So now that I've probably sufficiently stepped on everyone's toes, including my own, I'm going to bring us back as we close to John 17. We've been looking at uh, the foundation of our unity, and I hope you've been persuaded from Scripture that unity is important, more important than we've probably thought. I hope you've been convicted through Scripture of some ways in which we might not be living in accordance with that unity today. But I want to end not by looking at today, but by looking at tomorrow, at the future. Jesus prays this. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Dear believer, this is your future. It is our future together that we'll be with Jesus where he is. Earlier he had prayed that, he, that the Father would not take them out of the world, but now here he's praying that they would be with him. And that is the eternal future of everybody who believes in him. That we'll be with him forever. So let us keep things in perspective, dear friends. The divisions that you face today will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is impossible to do so. Romans 8 says it very clearly. That nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Let, let those divisions be kept in perspective and that today. They cannot divide you from Christ, and so may they not divide us from one another either. Because on that day, when we are gathered together around the throne of the Lamb who was slain, singing His praises for all of eternity, with our voices rising together in unison, from people from all over the globe, from past, present, and future, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, joining our voices together in perfect unison, singing praises to our Lord, the divisions and the, the, the dissensions that we face today will pale in comparison. Masks, a political candidate of preference. I'm not saying these things don't matter. But I'm saying that fighting over them and divisions over them right now may just be a symptom that we care far too much about this world and don't think enough of the next. These divisions will fade, but what will not fade is the unity that we have with Christ and the unity that we have with one another. As Mark Dever has said, America is an experiment, but the church is a certainty. The church will be forever. We will be with Christ. That is our future. And so to paraphrase Samuel Rutherford, Christ is all the heaven I want. Hell would be heaven if Christ were there, and heaven would be hell if Christ were not there. Eternal life is knowing Christ and enjoying him forever. This is my future, your future, our future together as a church. Those who are united together in Christ will be with him, singing the same song that we sing today for all of eternity, to echo the words of Paul, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you for loving us even as you love your son. How remarkable is this? Thank you for what you have done in bringing us to yourself. Father, I pray that we would be united together with each other. I pray that you would use your word this morning to convict where we need convicting, to encourage where we need encouraging, and to instruct us where we need instructing, that, that we would take seriously the unity of your church, that we would not forsake truth as we do so, but that we would, we would make a stand for the unity of, of your church, that we would keep the eternity in perspective, because we know the end of the story. We know we'll be with you. We know we will enjoy you. We know that this is eternal life. It is knowing God. So thank you that you have brought us to yourself united us together with you and then united us with your people and I pray that we would be perfectly one with them as we are perfectly one with you. We pray this all in the name of your beautiful Son. Amen.